HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by PASA Sustainable Agriculture. Register to attend PASA's 31st annual conference by January 28th at pasafarming.org conference. Welcome to The Grape Nation, your weekly wine journey. Our guest is Daniel Eddy. We'll talk to Daniel about the life of a wine-loving chef. We'll taste a Morgon, a Gamay, for our weekly wine sip. I'm your host, Sam Van Ruby. Stay with us for The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. We bring wine to the people. New Yorker Daniel Eddy jumped into the food scene in 2004. He bolted New York City after four years and hooked up with Daniel Rose at critically acclaimed Spring Restaurant in Paris. He eventually headed back to the States to become the opening chef at wine-centric Rebel on the Bowery, where he earned a Michelin star. Walnut Street Cafe in Philly followed. This baguette-obsessed Brooklynite opened his own restaurant, Winter in Park Slope, about a week before the pandemic. Yes, he's still going strong and has also opened a wine bar restaurant runner-up. Welcome to the Grape Nation, Daniel. Hello, hello. Um, you know, I just want to check some facts on the intro. Um, were you the opening chef at Rebel? I was. It was you. There yep. wasn't somebody before that. Um, and did I miss anything when you came back from the States after working with Daniel? I mean, did you do any short stuff in between or... Uh, yeah, I did a short summer up in Martha's Vineyard at my friend's uh, sandwich breakfast joint called 7A Foods, and uh, it was a fun little thing to go from French fine dining to, uh, you know, BLTs and chicken salad sandwiches, but I think it was a precursor for uh, things that came later well, on. Well, <laughs> yeah, ironically, when we get to talking about winter, there's some similarities there. All right, so to give our listeners a little context um, about who you are. Um, I want you to give us a brief background. Remember that word, brief. 
Remember, I <laughs> I prompted you on this off air. Um, give us a brief background on your journey in food, life, and wine that got you to really where we're sitting today, which is your two terrific restaurants, you know, winner and runner-up. Before you start, I just want to tell everybody, I'm talking to Daniel in person at his restaurant, winner and runner-up. We're sitting upstairs in Park Slope, Brooklyn. All right, so give me that journey. Uh, That journey began at the dinner table, um, specifically at my grandfather's, my father's uh, father uh, at his kitchen table in East Harlem. And uh, he had gone to World War II and came back after time in France with a newfound love for wine. So wine was always on the dinner table, uh, almost always Vouvray or Sancerre. Uh, It just was from his time there. Uh, And that's my earliest memory of wine being part of like the the dinner table. Um, After that, grew up. Started working in restaurants. Uh, the first place that wine was really present was Nice Matan when I was a uh, server. It was my first restaurant job, um, and I started uh, as a server there in Nice Matan. What Probably, year are we talking? Uh, we're talking 2003. Okay. You know? Um, I think that was that was my first restaurant where wine was a focal point, and I was on the front of the house. So weekly wine meetings, notes that had to be taken, tasting together. You were uh, part of that. I they was brought part of you that. in. Yeah, I was there. Plus, you were interested. I was to interested hear. just to, you know, 21 year old kids starting to like, you know, dabble in the restaurant industry while going to school. Didn't know that I'd end up cooking. Um, but that's sort of what came afterwards. So after Nice Matan started cooking with Michael Silakis at uh, his Greek restaurants, wine was also very much a part of his businesses, specifically Greek wine. So that began to sort of expand my understanding of what the what the scope of wine really was, that it wasn't sort of this minute sort of one thing, but had a big global um, impact. Uh, after that, I, after that four years cooking, that led me to going to Paris, where I worked with Daniel Rose for three and a half years. And that was a deep dive into really understanding not only wine, but food and wine. And because his focus is so classic French, the importance of allowing the food to support the wine and not try and flip it around really guided a lot of the discussions based around how we build food that's meant to pair with wine and allow the wine to drive the direction of the food and not the other way around. After that, got back to New York City, Patrick Capiello. Wait, what's the reason you leave? You realize I don't want to be in France anymore. I've had enough of this. I mean, <laughs> no, I mean I, is there like a weird story behind that? It's, it's not too weird. I went there with uh, my girlfriend at the time and oh boy, we had said we two years and then two years became three years and three years with all of a sudden a one-year-old. And so, you know, she was like, hey, we have a kid now. We have a family and I'm here by myself while you're working uh, in the kitchen. That and I'd also had said from the very beginning that I want to spend my 20s being a student, but... When I hit 30, I really want to start going out and doing a restaurant of my own. And that meant coming back to New York City and pursuing that sort of initial dream that I had. As much as I loved Paris and we both probably could have continued to stay there if I really had wanted to sort of like yeah. dig those roots down. But we were already there three years. And right. it was like, if we stay one more year, we're there for another four years after. So we left Paris. Wait, uh, before you get to, you told me you came to, uh, I don't know if you said Pearl and Asher Rebel, but when you got there, 
was your skill level up to speed? I mean, did you learn a lot there? I mean, were I mean, you kind of lost at the beginning when you left? I mean, were you this sort of French classically trained, you know, hip? Because Daniel's a younger guy, not one of these older guys. No, when I got there, I was fucked. I mean, okay. I mean, that's I, I moved to Paris not speaking a lick of French. You know, never having cooked in a French restaurant before. Like, my culinary career up to this point was Greek fine dining with Michael Silakis, <laughs> as well as, like, the kefi, like, you know, the the sort of more tavern-esque type so of food. So it was culturally a Yeah, it was, big... cult- it was language shock, culture shock, food, food and wine every, shock. Right. Like, all this was foreign to me. It's great. And I just... I dove in there like, you know, a, like that kid who just dives in doesn't really think of what the consequences might be. But there was this, you know, thirst and energy for wanting to learn and seeing how great of an opportunity Daniel had given me to say, hey, like you look like you're a kid with a lot of like excitement. I'll give you a visa to come over here and you're going to help me open up this restaurant and you're going to work for me for two years. And I remember relaying this offer to Elena um, and she said, she was, I was like, I don't know, two years. I, w- I only thought I was going to be here for a year. She's like, you don't say no to that. That's a yes type of answer that you give. And she's like, I'll come with you. And I was like, oh, well, cool. I got wow. this woman that I fell in love with is going to come with me to Paris and we're going to start a life there. Like it was very, uh, I so, don't know. Just, but, well, I guess one of the obvious questions is why wouldn't you do a similar thing like in the States? Well, that's the funny thing for that was really, uh, there were two things. When I was a green cook, uh, Alain Ducasse came to Michael Silox's restaurant and Michael freaked out. He was just, you know, Alain Ducasse was there. I had no idea who Alain Ducasse right. was. So he's freaking out. He's like losing his shit. Second restaurant comes. I'm on the postation. Alain Ducasse comes back. Again, he's going crazy. He's like, this is the best fucking chef in the world. You better fucking make things fucking perfect. And I'm there like, oh, my God. Like, th- my chef is yelling at me. I have to make this perfect. Otherwise, I'm going to get killed. And, you know, at, at that, you know, I put up my pasta dish. He's like, you're cooking for the best chef in the world. Is it perfect? I was like, yes. He was like, is it perfect? I was like, yes. He's like, okay. And it went out. And, you know word got back that the plate was wiped clean. And so I was like, cool, I didn't fuck it up. (laughs) But it led me to say, well, shit, like if Alain Ducasse, this best chef in the world, has interest in my chef to come at least twice to two different restaurants of his, then at least I've teamed up with somebody who's gained the interest of somebody that is of that stature. And I should go and learn from him. So my first trip to Paris was on this belief that I could walk up to one of Alain Ducasse's restaurant, knock on the door and be like, hey, I'm here to do a stage and uh, work for free. I mean, who says no to that? I just wanted to learn. Um, all to say that that didn't pan out. I went there and they kind of laughed at me. They're like, do you speak the language? No. They're like, do you have papers? No. I was like, do you, you have not, an appointment? Nothing. nothing. I was like, nothing. <laughs> but that led to me meeting Daniel Rose because a friend of mine had told me, hey, there's an American chef. And I was like, American English? Great. Somebody who I can speak to. And so that led to me actually So the meeting. Daniel hookup was not prearranged. You no. were there and then that came I about. I was there on a whim with no plan. Like I got Pretty to Paris cool. and I didn't have a place to stay that night. I was banking <laughs> on a friend's friend that had like stayed at my place for like two weeks. And so I got there with a suitcase and this sort of idea that I was just going to somehow make it happen. And the first three months went with just me kind of roaming the streets of Paris and engaging with the culture to the best that I could and making some friends. And it wasn't until I believe January that I finally got into the door at spring when it was the 18 seat little restaurant in the, in the ninth. 
And Daniel was like, I don't have space for you. You know, I already have one stagiaire and I continued to pester him. And it led to actually me working with him for the following three months. And it was in those three months, he was like, hey, do you want to move back to Paris and help me open up this new that's when it became venture? Permanent. And that's when it became permanent. That's interesting. All right. So you eventually leave that. We know why. Um, you come back to the States and where do you land? Uh, Martha's Vineyard. Uh, there for about six months for the summer from May of 2013 to like October of 2013. And then I moved back to the city and almost was immediately introduced to, uh, to Patrick and Brandon who were operating Pearl and Ash at that point in time. Do you remember who the intro was with? Yeah, it was, uh, my friend Josh Fontaine is good friends with Zev Roving and Zev the, and Patrick were talking and the they said, Hey, I want to open up a restaurant. We're looking for a French chef. Zev spoke to Josh. Josh was like, Hey, I know this American kid who was here for the last three years working in this French restaurant called Spring. He just moved back to his city, New York. Did they know about Spring? Uh, like jo- Josh, the, of course. The hybrid it. coming in is this guy's worth a shot right away. I mean, did they put you through some crap or? Uh, no, I think that we, we really went kind of like on a sort of, uh, hey, this is kind of who could have planned this one out, you know? It's sort of like mutual friends connecting us, both and, coming back with similar interests. And, I was coming and back good to guys. York. Yeah, and I was coming back specifically because I wanted to open up a restaurant. So here was a kind of straight shot for it. And um, so we began talking. I think it was like October, November of 2013. And then it took almost uh, – another six months to find a space and then, you know, nine months to build out a restaurant. And then and we, this is Pearl and Ash. No, this is Rebel. This is Rebel. Yeah. Pearl and Ash was running already. Pearl and Ash was already running. Okay. And that's what sort of uh, built right. the interest on their part to open up another venture. Now, Rebel is a wine centric restaurant with food. How was it presented to you? Presentation was, Hey, we want to do a restaurant. We want to capture a bit of what has been happening in Paris here in New York. What so do you think? a little taste of, of Paris. Yeah. That's a no-brainer, right? You know, everything sounds great on paper. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. then, and then New York City comes into play, and you're like, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, it's different. All right, so you're at Rebel. Um, your tenure there is how long? Three years, just about. And you nail a Michelin star, which is pretty amazing for that. You know, you think of Michelin stars as like per se and Midtown and all that crap. Here's the Bowery. Here's, like I said, a wine-centric bar. Here's a guy nobody really heard of. And, you know, you nail the star. How long into the three years was that? Towards the middle, the end? No, we got, uh, we opened up April of 2015. And I think it was that August we got the star. So like four or five months in. Um, Yeah, I mean, it was... You know, I never, the intention was never to try and get a star. That's never kind of been no, my interest. No, I don't see it was that. I mean, it, it, it happens. It happens. And, you know, it, I think it was nice to sort of get recognition that the I think, like I said, that, the Michelin star and a Bowery, yeah. you know, that's the cool part. It's sort of an antithesis. The crazy th- part, though, though, it's like, you know, you put things into categories and a Michelin star for a French restaurant means much different than a Michelin star for, say, Uncle Boone's, who was around the corner from right. us who was crushing it all the time, right. you know, it's, but from the public perception, it's sort of, I think the people still see French as being something that is elevated. Even if your intention is not that, it still can be perceived that way, which 
uh, can alienate a lot of people. You know, I've always kind of thought that there was a certain part that was, there was a downside to the Michelin star that it took away the accessibility that we had hoped for because all of a sudden it put us on this path where it's like, well, if you have one star, then you must be going for two. And if you're going for two, then you should probably go for three. But to just be... How about if you're a neighborhood guy and you go there once or twice a week, the star hits. Now everybody from all over Westchester, Long Island's coming in. You can't get a table. You know, that's the guy who got you to the game. You yeah. Know, now, I, I mean, it's all fun. Um, all right. So my understanding, because I've known you a while and I've known Patrick a while, is the Rebel thing was a good run, but it came to an end because of landlord or lease or... Uh, a combination of it all. Yeah. Just the straight up financials. I mean, of you didn't a business. plan for it to no. shut down when it did. No, I don't think that anybody plans for anything to shut down. Um, but it's also important to go into this industry, especially in New York City, understanding that the longevity is is a pursuit, not a guarantee. And that more often than not, like if you just look at the numbers, you know, if you make it, you know, past those like five years, like, yo, wow, you're golden. If you make it past a year, it's like, if you make it past two years it's and you can make one, a lot of people happy, two. yeah. Yep. And uh, sometimes the numbers just aren't there, you know? All right. So Rebel comes to an end, sadly. Mm-hmm. I mean, I felt that way. I'm sure you did. Um, what happens then? You guys, for some reason, well, head into Philly. Funny enough, the Philly came about because of wine. Uh, there was a group of guys who were having dinner at Rebel one night and having a blast and uh, I'm on my way sort of out the door and one of the guys jumps up from the table and he grabs me. He's like, Hey, we've had such a great time. The food's incredible. We loved it so much. We actually just bought a Magnum, uh, down. We just bought a Magnum to take on the car ride back down to Philadelphia. He's like, you don't have any plastic cups that we could take. And I like see these guys. I was like, I'll do you one better. And I went, I got him like a case of, of wine glasses. I was like, you're going to, you bought a Magnum, take the wine glasses, enjoy it, you know, on the car ride down. Um, and that led to, uh, the gentleman reaching back out saying, Hey, just want to follow up. I had a great time. I'm working on a project in Philadelphia and, uh, would love to sort of talk to you guys about it, see if there's any interest on your part. And so that conversation started and, uh, it presented an opportunity for me to learn something that I didn't know how to do. And that was to build something that could be independent of me, where I didn't have to be there seven days a week to sort of learn how to better delegate and put systems in place because otherwise I was going to continue down this path that I was on where it was like, I'm working six days a week, if not seven, I'm putting my family, my son, my partner, I'm putting them secondary to the business. And it wasn't something that I wanted for my future. I wanted to learn how to delegate these responsibilities, how to build something that could be uh, sustainable without my everyday presence. Um, And that's something that, uh, was worth enough to explore the the opportunity to do so because it was something that I had never done before. And it worked. It worked, yeah. Uh, you know, I would assume you were down there, you designed the menu, you know, you trained people, and then you were back and forth, right? Yeah, I was back and forth, and uh, it was grueling for some months where I would do breakfast and lunch in Philadelphia and then go back to New York City to do dinner service. And after dinner service, I'd run to the train to get back on the train to be back down to Philadelphia to repeat this cycle. And uh, it taught me a lot. And I was able to do that because I knew that there was also like a, a six-month window where it was going to be really intense. But that six-month investment would pay you know, off um, down the line. And uh, you know, I'm happy to say that 
Walnut Street Cafe is still up and running. Um, so still I should have asked you this off air. Are you still affiliated or you're out of there? I'm out of there. I haven't been back down in two years. Yeah, you that's know? what I figured. Um, I mean, when I and if there's ever anything that, you know, I can contribute towards, like everyone's got my number and they can call me if, you know, I need to go down there and look at the operation. Sure. But, you know, the Chef de Cuisine down there, uh, Jack has been running the show for the last three years and been doing a great job. Um, and so I kind of go by the no news is good news. Right. In this business. All right. So between then and winter, just walk me through that. Don't get into the details of winter because I want to sure. talk to you that later in the interview. But how did we how did we get here? I mean, so that uh, just like the guy bought a Magnum, that yeah. pro- you know, how did you know this location? So this I guess concept? that was uh, 2017 is when we opened up. Um, and by the end of that year, my obligation to that kind of came to an end of having to be there as often as I did. It was then I have to go down like once every month. And, um, but it allowed me finally to get to the time to be removed from a restaurant, to be a father, to be like, you know, just a present partner and to make up for some of that lost time, you know, spending time with my family, um, spending time with my friends and beginning to sort of think about what my career, uh, what I wanted it to look like. What did I want to do for myself and how could I find a balance between the professional and the personal? Um, Because I hadn't yet really achieved that. You know, I went from two states, two restaurants to no restaurants and being present but that also itself isn't sustainable. So it was, okay, how do I then position myself into having a business that can now run independent of me um, and can allow me to go away for the weekend with my wife and kid and not worry about Saturday night service? And so it took you know a year of, of sort of processing what that would look like. And in that year, I was anchored down here in Park Slope in the community where you know I've been living since 2014. And kind of began to assess what were the needs that I felt they were here, you know, and a lot of those because I was living in the neighborhood. So I was like, oh, this is what I miss. A lot of it was also built around the nostalgia and and my longing for the life that I had in Paris and some of these uh, things that we often lose out here, simple things like just a good loaf of bread that's coming hot out the oven. Um, good cup of coffee. A good roast chicken. You know, a simple all, pastry. Yeah. And so in that time, I started exploring the idea of, okay, well, what's something that I can build and not something that potentially has the opportunity for scale and uh, what's something that's also, you know, not seasonal. So the idea of a roast chicken came about. So- when did you open? Official opening date of winter, March 9th, Monday, March 9th, 2020. All right. So stop right there, okay? Because <laughs> we're going to come back to that. Um, how much lag time was there before you opened winter? I mean, how much were you contemplating, thinking, you know, figuring out the gaps that you needed to fill? Uh, a solid year. And then in May of 2019, I came across the space that had a for rent sign up. And Is that where we're sitting? That's where we're sitting, yeah. Okay. And from May up until October, it was negotiating and talking to the landlord and trying to convince him that, you know, I I was the person that, you know, he should give this space to. 
And obviously then the, the market was very competitive. He had a lot of offers coming in. I initially had approached him just about the 400 square foot carriage house space where I was like, I just want to put a rotisserie in there and have a tiny little like 16 seat wine bar. Is the carriage runner up? The carriage is runner up. We'll explain that to everyone. Um, It's crazy that if you want to do stuff and you're sort of in a rush or you're anxious, you're screwed because the process is the process and people will deal, you know, you have to kind of bite your lip, I guess. Yeah. All right. So let's get into that a little. So we're sitting here, it's almost two years after the pandemic, right? And we were hoping two years later, you know, we'd be kind of okay. Um, we're still dealing with Omicron, right? I'm starting to get sick about talking about COVID um, on the podcast. But the reason I want to talk about it with you is you have a unique story, which you kind of set up for me. After all the looking around and figuring out what to open and dicking around with the landlord, you opened the place up when again? March 9th, And when did COVID hit? Like more, seven days later? Not even. Uh, that was Monday. By Thursday, I stopped allowing people inside because I was reading the signs. First case hit, I think, New York City that Friday. And by Sunday, it was the full shutdown. Um, and so at that point, you know, I hadn't even had one full week of operation before the city just went done. What, what goes through your mind? Like it's over before it started. I can get through this. What sort of unknown? I mean, what are, what are those? Cause, cause I mean, a lot of people tell you they open during, you know, the, the pandemic or right after, I, I mean, you shot it to the week. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, you know, what, what do you, th- am I screwed? What, what you know? Uh, I think that my reaction was probably something along the lines of, uh, fuck. (laughs) It was. There was, and there were so many unknowns. And then the following few weeks was just operating in this sort of gray space of, am I breaking the law right now by being open? All the regulations. That, I had no idea. That part drove you no, crazy. Nobody knew. They like, knew I nothing just, about the virus. They knew nothing of what to do. And you as a businessman tried to be a good citizen, but what? Right? So that Monday, my wife and my son left. We said, hey, we'll see you in a couple of weeks when this thing dies down. Couple it was of weeks. Better, we said, better that you guys get out of the city, go up to you know your father in Connecticut, hang out over there. And then once this sort of dies down, we'll see each other again. But for me to be going back and forth, it seems to be I'm putting you guys at risk. And this is before vaccines. This is when right. things are just beginning to ramp or up. Or anything. And you know that two-week time that we had spoken about turned into five months. Um, so- it's nice to hear that five months later you're still standing. And I think a few of the things I want you to talk about is I guess you got your feet on the ground and you figured it out. You started innovating a little. You know, you went to the window. You brought in guest chefs. You, you know, tell me about some of the stuff, you know, that kept you in the game. I think I got really lucky I got lucky in a lot of ways, and that's one of the things that I think that isn't often spoken about in the city, just when it comes to the hospitality industry, is how much luck is a factor. One, I got super lucky with having an incredibly talented team with me. You know, my head baker, my head pastry chef, they're just incredible individuals. 
Um, the model that was also built before the pandemic hit was exactly what we ended up offering, even down to the family meal. The only pivot being that instead of, you know, allowing, instead of doing it all in-house, we then started inviting friends who were unemployed, who were at home going stir crazy and telling them, hey, you know, come over here, cook for a week, get out of the house, don't lose your mind, don't lose crazy. And that and not allowing people inside anymore um, were the two biggest changes. But other than that, like, the coffee menu, the pastry menu, the bread menu, the sandwich menu, all those things, the rotisserie chicken menu, all those things were things that were built around this idea because I'd already experienced failure once. Rebel was a, a restaurant that failed, you know, in part because we never maximized the utility of the space, you know, to, to open up a, a dinner only restaurant is hard to open up a dinner only restaurant. That's almost 120 seats with an over $30,000 a month rent is really hard. And so for me, especially since this was, you know, all my like, you know, family and investing into this project, you know, I was like, I need to figure out how to make this work. And that means trying to generate as much revenue as I can throughout the entirety of the day. And if that means $100 every hour, then hell, I'd rather have $100 every hour than like try and make $1,000 in one hour. Um, and so- But it was perfectly set up for that. Yeah. I and, mean, and the, the baking, the pastries, you know, that morphs into a good lunch. Yeah. The dinner, the chicken. I mean, that's like people yearned for that during- And that the, was uh, also so much of like just- that was done, that schedule was done out of restriction because, you know, we have a small bread oven. So we can only bake off X amount of things before we had to bake something else off. So it wasn't that we were trying to be annoying. It was just like, this is the space that we have and this is what we can fabricate. And as a byproduct of the shutdown, it forced everyone to stay here in the neighborhood. People who would otherwise commute into the city and say, ah, never mind, I'm not gonna try that place. I have to get to work. We're here landlocked in their neighborhood and then going stir crazy at the house. So they're like, oh, well, okay. Sourdough comes out at 11. Special sourdough comes out at 12. Focaccia comes out at one. You know, sandwiches start at 11. Pastries are only up until 11 and they don't sell any pastries after that. So it gave people multiple excuses to get out the house and come and try something at its peak. You know, it, we're like, hey, baguettes are coming out in 15 minutes. We were like, okay, I'll take two and I'll wait right here. And the baguettes would come out the oven. They go, fuck, that's hot. I'm like, yeah, it just came out the oven. Um, I think the neighborhood too. I mean, you really have a neighborhood neighborhood. I mean, yeah. you made a good point with Rebel that it was basically a wine dinner place. I'm not sure that neighborhood is is entrenched, you know, with a community like this. Maybe. I don't know. I mean, New well, York City. Yeah. I mean, I know that my son goes to school here. I know that there is, you know, six other public schools in and around here. So that kind of leads me to believe that, you know, we have a lot of families and families mean yeah. sort of anchors that are dropped yeah. into these grounds and that creates They came out years. of the buildings. Yeah. You know, um, so- you hung in there. I mean, it, it's it's more than what we say. I mean, it's it's your offerings. I mean, the breads, the pastries are unbelievable. They're unique, not to the neighborhood, but they're unique in the sense that they're as good as anything. You know, the chicken dinner, who doesn't like chicken? Chicken well-made is, you know, even better. Everybody's used, you know, to dry chicken. Any realizations? I mean, did you learn anything from the pandemic? I mean, when you take pause, do you sit there and... Do you appreciate employees more? Oh, Do you run your business differently? I mean, anything come to mind? So, you know, pandemic hit mid-March. Um, Mid-April, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Uh, Mid-April of 2020? Yeah. The so pandemic a month, year? Yeah, a month after the pandemic, my mom was diagnosed with cancer. Um, 
And the next uh, months were us trying to sort of navigate her uh, diagnosis along with the pandemic, trying to figure out how to, you know, get her to the hospitals, how to keep her safe as she tried to fight this fight that we were told from the very beginning was going to be a losing one. And so it wasn't until August uh, that we were able to actually get her out the city. And so in August, we got my mom out the city, my sister and I, and uh, finally reunited with my mom, uh, with my with my wife, uh, my partner, Elena, and uh, my son, Enzo. And so we all got together finally. And then that was after five months of not seeing them. And um, we all Jesus. went back up to the vineyard. And uh, we were there from August uh, up until her passing in February, January 30th, actually, was the day that she passed. So in that time, you know, I, I left the business that had just opened in the hands of the staff that, you know, had had come to start to make this happen. Um, it was that moment where I kind of just was like, you know what, like I have only this amount of time left with her. And so the business, you know, trust, trust the people that I've put in place to run it, to run it. And, um, to know that I'm only a phone call away and that I'll try and come down periodically, but you know, I have X amount of time with my mom and that's going to take priority over the business's success or failure. And in that time, you know, it's, uh, the team, not only held it down, but caused this growth to occur that I wasn't a witness to. To leave in August and then to come back and just get snippets of all the things that have been happening and to come back then in February and see this sort of transformation that had occurred over the course of the first year of opening um, to what it had become, uh, you know, I, I, the credit is really theirs, you know. Well, things trickle down from you and your vision and who you are and how you handle them. But it also proves that it trickles back up, you know, how they did it. And, and you know, it's not entirely luck or coincidence. It's a little of that. I mean, it's good people that are committed to you, you to them, them to, you know, doing the right thing. Um and so, yeah, so that's uh, so you, the appreciation of, of employees. I mean, that's beyond is, pandemic. Your yeah. mom thing alone, you yeah. know, with or without. So, yeah, uh, you know, the the priority of this business has to be the employees. You know, it, it's because of them that the place is where it is now. It's uh, the reason that I was able to have the time that I had. Um and, you know, it's like I try and do everything that I can right now to improve that quality of life for for the staff. And there are growing pains, there are mistakes, but there's always this uh, interest that I have in hearing directly from them and hearing them where things can improve. You know, I need and flourish off of that constructive criticism. And sometimes it's hard to hear because no one ever wants to hear that you've, you know, fallen right. short. But like you right. need to hear that stuff in order to improve and build upon that. Right. It sounds like balance is important. You know, when you started, it's like 60, 80 hours a week in some crazy kitchen. Then as time went by, as you talked about it, you know, like in Philly, being able to be away from it and run it, learning how to run it, that's important here. But also recognizing, you know, your people, which in the end is really, you know, what this business is all about. Um, so we're not out of the woods. No. But... <laughs> 
you figured out a way to, you know, keep things going, obviously. I mean, I walked in here, there's a line out the door, and it was 11 in the morning. We're not even talking, you, you know, the coffee hour passed, lunch hasn't hit yet, mm -hmm. and dinner. So, I mean, that's pretty good. Um, all right, I wanted to check you on something else. You had alluded to it a little, but as you were working in the business, you know, you've been cooking for almost two decades. Fuck. <laughs> I know. And you're a young guy. Um, you were exposed and understood wine through your grandfather. I guess being in France helped because culturally there. When did you realize, you know, that wine was sort of an important thing to the business, to you? Um, I mean, you talked about it a little, you know, it's definitely, well, definitely my time at spring and, and working with Daniel Rose, it was, that was the wine that, and food. Wine and food. I wouldn't say equally important, but part but the, of the mojo. The, yeah. That's where it was understood that both were intertwined, that, uh, that they kind of lived this sort of symbiotic relationship, um, and it was a constant discussion, not only within the workplace, but in the culture outside of the workplace. You know, I, I think that I, of the three years that I was there, I probably had six beers. <laughs> I can't count the amount of bottles of wine that we had, but there was always a conversation. And it was something that we'd, uh, it was part of the dialogue at the end of the shift when we go to another friend's uh, restaurant and we'd open up magnums of. So you were inquisitive, you were drinking, you took advantage. The, the culture was there. Any influences? Like, was there one or two guys you look back that dragged you around? Was it Daniel Rose? I mean, Daniel Rose definitely within the workplace was very much was like Daniel, hey, a wine guy. Oh, like very much okay. so. Yeah, his knowledge is incredible when it comes to wine, and so much of that importance was sort of him, sort of uh, imparting that on on me. It's like, hey, try this, taste this. How does this work with the sauce? What doesn't work? How do we treat this piece of food differently so it can work better with this? What's the herb? What's the zest? And all these things were always like, hey. The wine that's in the glass is the wine that's in the glass. The food you can tweak to make it go better with that. And that was how the food was very often constructed there. Um, so it's fair to say great chefs constructed food, but not with an eye towards or the appreciation of wine as a com complement or companion, yeah. right? And I think that so that's one of the things. So you walked out of there. I walked out of there Daniel. with that sort of foundation. And it then got only furthered working with Patrick because Patrick I was, was going to say, I mean, it's almost like you sought out the right guy. I mean, did you realize after the match was so good or you knew a little going in? I mean, going, Patrick had a good resume going into it. Going into it, too, just sort of seeing his enthusiasm about the wine and his sort of uh, love for food um, was very evident that there was a lot of opportunity to sort of further that education Uh when it came to like doing the cooking uh, and wine videos that we did together or uh, the Rebel Winemaker series where it was like inviting different winemakers to highlight their their, I, I attended their entire, a bunch. I mean, it was they an were incredible, very tight. It, the menu was tight. <laughs> the, the service was tight. The food, the wine, you yeah. know, it was really, it wasn't a... It was a casual place, but it was it was done well. Yeah, it's you know? casual, That's, but like you know, we take our shit seriously, your, right? Yeah, I mean, you you felt that, you know, when to the curls of the Comte, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's crazy. Um, so, 
Rebel was sort of an extension of, you know, how they thought about it in France, which was a nice thing, right? Yeah. And I mean, that's a lot. That's where the name sort of came out. You know, that's when I, when we were sort of brainstorming of what the names of the restaurant could be, you know, it's sort of, for me, I wanted it, you know, it, it was Rebel, you know, it was French, but rebelling against this idea right. of what a French restaurant had to be in New York City it was on the Bowery, but it had a banging wine list. The food was rooted in a lot of classics and a lot of the things that I learned from Daniel Rose, um, but trying to sort of take a bit of ownership from that while still adhering and respecting all that I had learned in the three and a half years of working with him. Um, and so it, there was that extension of my time. And that was the that was the idea from the beginning. They wanted to do a sort of French restaurant that tipped its hat to Paris. And uh, I wanted to sort of find a place that I could begin to really explore my own voice within the food. The space was amazing, too. It was fucking huge, man. I mean, you walked just... in, the bar was on the left, it went down, <laughs> the kitchen in the back. I mean, it's like you you got to lie in bed and dream about that. You don't have enough space to make baguettes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, listen, we're talking to Daniel Eddy. We have to take a quick break. When we get back, we're going to talk to Daniel about um, his current restaurants and what he's doing. Um, you're listening to The Grape Nation on the Heritage Radio Network. This episode is brought to you by Pasa Sustainable Agriculture. For 30 years, PASA's conference has served as a springboard for transformative food system change. PASA's 2022 conference features more than 30 virtual and 90 in-person sessions on farming and food systems, covering topics that include building community food webs, keeping seeds to preserve cultural traditions, protecting local watersheds, as well as production methods and business skills for food producers of all levels. Keynote speakers include Soulfire Farms' Leah Peniman, author of Farming While Black, Sarah Mock, author of Farm and Other Efforts, and Jessica Gordon Nemhard, author of Collective Courage, a history of African-American cooperative economic thought and practice. PASA's virtual pre-conference takes place January 4th through 28th. Register anytime to attend live or get recordings. You can also join PASA in Lancaster, Pennsylvania on February 10th through 12th for its in-person main conference. Comprehensive COVID safety measures will be in place. Learn more and register at pasafarming.org slash conference. That's P-A-S-A farming.org slash conference. All right, we're back. We're back with my guest, Daniel Eddy. Daniel is the proprietor of Winner and Runner Up. And I want to talk to you about that now. So let's talk about your restaurants, um, Winner and Runner Up. You, you, again, you alluded to this. I guess it's every chef's dream to own his own place. <laughs> I mean, there's that handful of guys that don't, but I mean, is is that what you set out to do? Yeah, uh, definitely what I set out to do. Um, I wanted to have a place that I could, you know, uniquely call my own, you know, to sort of decide the location, decide the name, decide how the structure would be best for, suited for the neighborhood, um, uh, and how to exist within it, you know, and, and kind of be that person to make those decisions that uh, 
up until this project, I had to sort of work with others to do so. Um, but I still hadn't found that opportunity to sort of have a place that felt representative of who I was and, and what I wanted to put forth. Well, it seems like it seems like we talked it through, but the restaurant is a representation of everything behind you and taking all the good things, you know, and, and, and putting them here. You know, the further wine service at Rebel, the classic French training in, in Paris, the Paris vibe wines, right? Isn't that all here? The sandwiches made out in Martha's Vineyard, you know? Right. It's, it's, all, uh, right, which is, you know, this is very casual. But tell me this. I think I stumbled on this. Was it your idea to open runner-up first? Was that the concept or was it always winner or... No, that came down to just sort of uh, logistics. You know, I didn't have a liquor license when I first got the space, so I had to go through the whole application process. But knowing you wanted it and you'd get it? Yeah, that was always- I mean, you didn't want a restaurant without a liquor license. No, the the financials didn't make sense to me without having that revenue stream. I couldn't do a strictly food operation. But what I could do was start off with what is often the hardest thing to do, and that's like the revenue stream from 7.30 in the morning till- five o'clock, you know, or even five thirty. So I figured that if I can make the business sustain itself based on the hard part, you know, that the food and wine in the evening would be supplemental to that. I mean it's not brilliant. It's just so logical. Right. And and, and, and the the hand was forced. Like I didn't have the the privilege of having, you know, a deep bank account that I could keep on drawing for. Like I had a finite amount that I had to make this happen. So, you know, when I signed the lease in October, I got in there the next day and started doing all the demolition work myself. I didn't have outside contractors. I had to do that shit on my own because that's just what it was. I had to decide how this was going to happen. And, you know, part of me not getting the liquor license in the beginning was because I also didn't have the money actually to pay for the liquor license. (laughs) So I had to like prioritize all these other things first before I could get to that point. And that led to the opening of the bakery um, before the restaurant. So just to put things chronologically, you open the bakery so that you could take advantage of the day, create revenue. Um, the chicken wasn't available right away? No, not because uh, I also didn't have the rotisserie in yet. So right. in the beginning, we actually were doing like a similar chicken to what we did at at Rebel, where it was like fully deboned and, and roasted whole. It wasn't whole. a rotisserie. It wasn't a rotisserie. Um, and we did the friends and family meal um, series kind of a month after opening. And that was also- Was that a covid Reason or you were going to well, do that? Well, I had always planned on doing family meal. The right. same thing. I had just I had the frustrations of going to the neighborhood, trying to go to a restaurant, waiting thirty minutes before the food hit because we also had to take make decisions and also spending three times more than I would want to. So the idea was family meal was going to be seventeen dollars. You get what you get, and you don't get upset. You know that was like the right. the phrase here in the neighborhood that I've right. always heard. So you know if it was pasta day and we had tortellini, that's what was for dinner. You come in, you pay seventeen bucks, you eat, you get out. It seems it seems like it worked. Now. I want to talk to you about a little about the wine program and the list and a little more about runner-up. But I got to tell you, man, and I, I don't like toot everyone's horn, but that's like some of the best damn chicken I've ever eaten. <laughs> I mean, I don't – like I make chicken all the time and I eat it everywhere, but I, I don't know what it is. Is it because it's rotisserie? Does rotisserie give you I, – I know it's timing and seasoning, but just, just give me – a, a couple of tips here, please. I dude, like I, it's 
it's the, I don't know. I can't, I, there's nothing else to say except that it's like, it feels like a very straightforward thing for me. There aren't like, there aren't any like deep secrets, you know, it's, it's a great quality bird salted. So, yeah, let's so salted, see great quality season season for 48 hours. And then we roast so wait, it. I salt it, put it in the fridge. Let Two it, days later. No brining, just no salt brining, on just it. salt. No pepper. No pepper. Because that's bitter or whatever. No, it's not that. It's just, you know, I just All right, decided. then what happens? And I then, take uh, the chicken out. We take the chicken out. Here we- uh, You skewer it up on the rotisserie? And then we, we roast it. And we roast it. Are you adding anything or it's just dripping its own juices? It's dripping in its own juices. We actually, no, we brush a, a little bit of like smoked honey on top. Just smoked to, honey. Yeah, and that was as a result of the first- Chicken but not version heavy, that we're doing. Not heavy hand on the smoke. No, 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 no. It's like- Because I, I- No, it's not like, we're not like lacquering it up. It's just like a quick rub just to help to accelerate some of the- And then you- And uh, then we just roast it, it and we take it off. So and, a three pound chicken, does a three pound chicken have an average cooking time? What time am I spinning this thing? Uh, we are here 50 minutes, you know. Five uh, oh, somewhere in that range. 50 minutes, 30 minutes at 350. And then we drop it down to 160 and let that go for another 20 minutes and then let it cool down. 50 plus 20? No, no, 30 plus 20. 30 plus 20. All right. I know and we're so, spending a lot of time you know, on the no, chicken, but, but that's for me. Yeah. You know, Maybe I'll edit it out. But I, all right. And then <laughs> I'm not editing it out. And then you make your own chimichurri. Is it a chimichurri sauce or is it we, a green? Is it a salsa verde? We call it a salsa verde, you know, but it also has like grainy mustard in there and shallots and herbs and olive oil. Um, what are the greens? Is that like parsley, cilantro? Fiend herbs, yeah. Okay. Uh, no cilantro, but parsley. Uh, we get a bit of dill in here, tarragon, chives. So uh, some classic some classics, herbs, yeah. French, you know. But, yeah. There's a certain desire that I, I really- Olive oil? Uh, olive oil in there. Yeah. And there's a certain like decision that I made that I want to keep the chicken neutral because I want to kind of promote this idea that like we have all these other sauces that we make, uh, that the hope is that people can grab a sauce, grab a chicken and kind of then do the last part of their meal with that. So, you know, you can get the Romesco with the almonds and then just make some potatoes at home, or you can get, um, you know, Perfect. the curry sauce and cook some rice at home. And so it just cuts down on the labor of cooking, a lot of the food because I, I, this came out of the thing of convenience, like families coming back from, you know, both families are, you know, parents working, having to pick up their kids, trying to put food on the table, right. go right. to the supermarket, get a roast but, chicken, or it's sold out there. It's just like, give a better well, option. I was just going to say, give them a better option. Give them a better chicken. Um, all right. So I'm going to, uh, off air, I'm going to put you in a headlock and get the specific ingredients for the uh, salsa verde. <laughs> But we'll deal with that later because I don't want to scare you away <laughs> for the so rest good. of the interview, right? All right. So I'm a little confused. Help me. Um, so runner-up came after. I know that because mm -hmm. winter's been up and, you know, we, I was a runner-up in the summer and it, I guess it recently opened. Was it always in the sights going after that liquor license to have a separate place because in essence there's a a separate space you yeah know, for runner-up initially it was all just going to be called winter and fall into the same thing okay. but because of the pandemic and the duration of time that it took to actually get open i figured that it would end up being a little bit too complicated to try and sort of express to the public one more thing that winter was doing on top of already 
12 hours of programming and that it would be better suited to give it its own identity. And uh, we were all brainstorming and my pastry chef, Ali Spar, she's like, I got an idea. She's like, you should call it runner up. And I was like, done. Like there was awesome. She nailed the name. It's perfect. Uh, The food content that she wanted to put up there was still a little questionable. You didn't agree. (laughs) I was like, I don't know about that. that. I was like, I'll give you the name, but the corn dogs are not going to (laughs) happen. You know? I don't know. I mean, I, I, to you, I get what you're saying, but that may have worked, you know, (laughs) and you knew they'd be the best corn dog. Anybody corn dogs wine you know um all right so here's your opportunity now to bring you know what you love to what you've been doing which is have wine and food um and all of that let's talk about the wine i mean a big thing these days is a smaller tight wine list i think that makes sense for you because you don't have this big massive place you probably don't have place to store all the wine so what's your thinking on what you're going to do with the wine list do you lay it off on somebody are you involved with it how do you does how do you put the list together no in the very beginning i was putting together um you know with the assistance of my general manager uh marshall vickers who was part of the pearl and ash and rebel team he had a big part in the wine there and then continued on working within wine uh, so the two of us started really building it together in the very beginning. I always had a clear vision of what I wanted. I wanted a cheap and cheerful list that was going to be easy and accessible for the neighborhood and for myself and for my friends and my peers. Uh, the one thing that I learned about Park Slope is that Park Slope is a neighborhood that's very well-educated when it comes to wine. Slope Cellars is just a couple blocks away, and they were one of the reasons that I was happy to move to Park Slope. As a kid who grew up in East Harlem, living in Park Slope was the last place I ever fucking thought that I'd be living. But, you know, you have a kid, you have a partner, you don't get the say anymore, even if you are the New Yorker and you try and lay, you know, state claim to that. But, you know, we came to Park Slope and I met Patty and Ben at Slope Cellars and saw the wines that they were serving over there that there was on the shelf. And it evoked all of my memories of living in Paris and what I was seeing. I was thrilled to see some of the producers that I saw there. And so that was in 2014. Fast forward six years later, I've seen what the public in this neighborhood has bought and they drink really well based on just so let's talk that about success. That. You know, this is a pretty good example, you know, of a New York neighborhood. It could be a microcosm. What are people looking for here? Like, what are they drinking? Is it European-centric? Is it French-centric? Does it skew, like, is there a heavy ask and push for natural wines? Is it that hipster, do you have orange wine? You know, I mean, what is it? One of the things that I was very pleased, and again, like, I I can only speak, like, I'm kind of a loyalist. Like, I I go to Slope Cellars and I don't buy any wine anywhere else in the neighborhood because that's my shop. That's where I go. I know everybody there. And so I can only say to what they offer there. And there's definitely been a progression of the wine that has gotten, uh, you know, it was it was great then. It's even better now, you know. And it's just looking at the quality of producers, new producers, it's definitely, I think, European-centric, uh, uh, although they do look at a lot of the American winemakers as right, well. Right, which is growing and there's yeah. some good people that you don't want to Phenom- sort of ignore. Exactly. And so, so – but. Smaller, interesting producers. Yeah, smaller, stories, you know, stories and and ones that they could sort of, they also are just delicious, you know. I think those tend to be guys that are 
focusing towards viticulture, a little more towards sustainability, natural. Would you agree? Not coincidentally. Yeah, I would that agree. That's what a lot of. I would want. agree, and not only that, but that was also very much of what I was present in my time right. living in Paris. I was in Paris. My first stint there was from 2008 into 2009, and then it was from 2010 to 2013, and that was also a, a big sort of uh, resurgence of natural winemaking, not in the way that a lot of people sort of like to say natural to be now where it's, you know, right. pure mouse and all skunk and yeah, just yeah, not yeah. like we're I talking think about c- properly made, properly farmed, minimal use of any sulfites or only used when needed, um, working right. the land and not getting the pesticides to do the work for you. And it goes even beyond taking care of your workers, you know, not just the soil, but the people, you know, that do all of it. I mean, it's nice to hear all of that. Um, So let's close our eyes for a second. Somebody comes to winter, they can get awesome breads, they can get a chicken dinner. Eventually when things ease up, they could sit down. They come to runner-up. Describe runner-up to me. It's a restaurant, wine bar, small, intimate. We just talked about the list, the food. The space itself, the idea was to have a place similar to um, a place like Le Vent Comtois in Paris, like this eight standing room person, people crammed in into a sardine can, standing room only, just but kind of like- people standing there. Standing, exactly. Just standing and just like drinking wine, spilling out into the street, a place like Odeux Amis. That was really the, the vision that I had for runner-up, obviously- 16 people in a 200 square foot room isn't really the idea for people what are gravitating towards in today's day and age. But, you know, with the pandemic came outdoor seating. With outdoor seating, there came a lot of ambiguity of how we're supposed to operate and what we can do and can't do. Hopefully that will all be like clarified and we can improve upon that. But the intention is still the same. It's a place you can come and have a delicious meal that can be counted on just being good and it's going to, and a strong lawn list, that, a wine list that you can come in and, you know, either have a glass or have a bottle and that you can find something cheap and cheerful. Or if you're looking for a special event that you can look to the 86 list and, and find a gem within that. Easier said than done, but you're doing it. I remember we were here for a wine dinner and we stayed after and we started pulling wines off the list, <laughs> you know, which is pretty nice. Um, couple things. I want to get to our wine list. I want, you know, I want to ask about some of your preferences in wine. But a lot of our friends, guys like James O'Brien, Annie and the girls at King, they're all starting to like expand into serious stuff. Are you thinking that or you just want to get settled with what you have? Because I'm no restaurant consultant, but you certainly could use some space. (laughs) No, and that's actually you know, been a cause for an expansion that's happening, you know, this coming year. Um, Somebody had shared with me a post that uh, Prospect Park Alliance um, was accepting RFPs to spaces in Prospect Park, and I submitted one, and uh, without detailing or, you know, giving away too much, um, it got accepted. So that led uh, for the opportunity for me to do a project in Prospect Park. This is going forward? This is going forward. You know, this is going to be this coming summer. So with that came the realization that we have already kind of reached the capacity of the space here at 
winter. So there is expansion, but it's all kind of occurring more out of necessity and less on a want. My want would be to not have to like grow and just grow the space physically, but because the walls are brick and mortar, like I can't expand them. So it has caused this uh, sort of opportunity for us to expand and, um, and, and make space so that the departments that are here that have seen this business grow from what it was initially thought that it would do to what it's currently doing have actually space to work and not crawl on top of one another right. because that also really detracts from the lure of working a place. If you're uncomfortable, you're uncomfortable. It doesn't matter how how nice everybody is. Like it if it get, sucks, it sucks. It'll get to you. Yeah, and it'll get yeah. to you. And so in, in that same effort of wanting to improve the the space because I know what that does to people's own mental health you know, we, we have to sort of now make this thing happen. Um, and, you know, I feel fortunate to be in the position that I can look at my business and say, hey, like we've reached its limit and now we have to expand. And now it's just making sure that the decisions that are made moving forward are the correct ones and they're made for the right reasons and that we really look at what the needs are and then put the wants on the back burner. I like to hear that because the more people you can get food in their mouths, the, the better job you're doing with the stuff that you're putting in their mouth. So it's good to hear that. We'll keep, um, we'll keep in touch with you on that, see where everything happens. All right. We don't have a ton of time. I want to do two things. I want to do the wine list, and I want to do a quickly weekly wine sip. Um, while you're going to start contemplating the wine list, open up the wine. Let's drink that. Let's talk about it and how that fits in on the vibe of what you're doing. All right, so the wine list, five questions, same five questions to everybody. We've done over 200 of these, okay? <laughs> people, way uh, more, people way more famous than you have uh, answered it. No, just kidding. All right, so here's the first question. What are you drinking now? Now, we're, we're going to be drinking a Morgone, but like what, like when you go to the wine store or in your fridge at home or you have a little downtime with your, what are you going to drink? It's dry January, man. <laughs> Screw that. <laughs> um, dry Riesling. <laughs> dry Riesling. Yeah. No, I, I, in the end, I've been uh, deferring very much. To, I try to, I go to Slope Cellar still, even though I have a full wine list over here. I kind of want to go over there as much as I can. And So what, what's, what's popping uh, up now? You know, what's more now than normal? Or uh, One of the, the new staff members that's been there now for a while, Alejandra, um, she, uh, used to work over at Romans has now been working at Slope Cellars. Uh, she's been putting me onto a lot of Italian wines that I haven't had as of late. And my partner being like. Italian and from, uh, Milano, it's sort of like, it's nice to sort of go back to sort of her own roots and start looking at, um, but, uh, are we talking Lange, Barolo, or are we talking Tuscan, uh, Chianti? No, You're no, talking- no, no, Going on the sort of lighter, fresher northern wines, um, looking at some Alto of, Pomante. Yeah, or, looking okay. at some of that over there. Uh, we've spent a bit of time up in um, Dolon, up in like Monte Bianco area. And so there's a lot of wonderful winemakers up there that uh, we've been enjoying. So, yeah, Italians as of late, you know, and that's been sort of as a desire of wanting to, um, Get a better understanding. And of you're not there region. yet. You need to drink through. Yeah. You and know, you're liking what you're drinking. Yeah. All right. So that's a good one. Uh, this is the silliest question of the bunch. But you're a food and you're a wine guy. So give me your, not the best, your favorite wine and food pairing. You probably don't eat it every night. You probably don't even cook it all the time. But what's that? Ah, like this is, this works. Oh, uh Oysters and 
Shannon. You know, I forgot to tell you, we have a rule. You're not allowed to say oysters and champagne. Oh, really? But yeah, because that's, ob- <laughs> that's obvious. But, but shout out to Shannon that it's a great wine, you know, with oysters. Yeah. I mean, everything goes well. I mean, the oysters are in that region, the wine's there, you know, the salinity. I, all I didn't know that that was a rule that you could do well, that. But I I forgot, just, I, listen, it's like, it's the dead of winter. It's when oysters are sometimes it's best, you know, but it's also contrary to necessarily like, you know, we're, we're drinking a red wine right now because it feels appropriate. So I had Peter Lehman, the champagne expert last week, and I asked him the same question and I'm like, okay, Peter's like this deep sea diver, diver lives in France, you know, he's been everywhere. I'm waiting to hear his wine and food thing. His answer, he was one step away from uh, oysters and champagne. Champagne and fried chicken. Yeah. Which has come up on this show, you know, a lot. But that was Well, that's what we did for uh, New Year's Eve this year. We did uh, fried chicken, caviar, and champagne. Perfect. It's just, you know, hey. That works really well. All right. So take into account the pandemic. Nobody's been doing any regular stuff for two years. Take account into account that what you do, you know, you're a maniac as far as how many hours you need to spend time to get to the family. Do you have any favorite wine restaurants and or bars? Places that you go into, like Slope Cellars would be the answer for a retailer. What's what's the uh, answer? And And whoever you mention, you're not leaving anyone out. Like if you see a buddy... What you know? Sure. Why do you say? But who's you know who has the list? Who's doing what you're doing? They got the vibe. They got the food. They got the knowledge. I mean, full transparency. I think that I haven't been to a Manhattan restaurant in probably two years, with exceptions of a couple of places. Woo's, which is great but that because you bring your own stuff. exactly, which is like a cheat. Uh, but went to People's as well, and you know the wine list over there has been getting you know. It's great. <laughs> and the that's food the is- That's the Contra Wild Air guys? Yeah, that's Jeremiah, Fabs, and Daryl. Right. Um, they have the people's, uh, the the, the so shop that, as well as the restaurant. That and, place fits the category, well, right? Well, yeah. And, and recently I went there and uh, Sonny is doing a, a banchan menu over there. And I had the, the menu and the food. It was fucking delicious. And the wine list was a lot of fun. Uh, but here in Brooklyn, you know, the places that I find myself often frequenting, um, again, in large part because of proximity, Lalu. Um, Joe with, Campanelli. Yeah, Joe Campanelli, Dave Foss. You know, it's uh, it's a great space. The wine list there is is just on point. Um, going down Frank's Wine Bar too. You know, yes. I love what the Franks have been doing. It's been a John place that Patterson. I've been going to for long. And John Patterson is another person who lives two blocks away from here in Park Slope. So we see each other all the time. Has he picked a few chickens up? Yeah, he's picked a few chickens <laughs> up, you know. And I've also delivered a few baguettes. So there's this nice sort of, again, that symbiotic relationship. But um you know, those are like the places that you those are all good jump ones. Off. Say no more. Yeah. Say no more. I those won't. are all because uh, <laughs> you can't think of any. All right. <laughs> Fourth question. Favorite all time wine. When I started the show, everyone I sat down with, whether it was like Pierre or Antonori or Aldo Sam, I was hoping what was the rarest, most expensive wine you ever drank? I don't care about that anymore. What's that wine? That was an eye opener, a life changer, important to you to this day. And it doesn't have to be fancy or expensive, but it has to be meaningful. Oh, man, you're making me dig down deep. And it could be more than one if it's like it's this and that. Was it anything in France? Was it something here? No, was it slope sellers? The memories that I have really where there were a lot more epiphanies. Um, 
Yeah, no, all the Finney wine all, is good. All, all those occurred in Paris in that time frame. Um, you know, anything uh, stick out? Well, yeah, and actually, it actually leads to another place that I think the wine list is excellent and the food is excellent, which I fucking love, which I have been to twice over the pandemic, and it is in Manhattan, so I was incorrect, but Ernesto's. Oh, man. And so Pierre Derrien, who's a dear friend of mine, I love him to death, he and I knew each other from when I was living in Paris, so we're going back to 2010, and he was working out. Now, who's Pierre? Is he the owner, chef? Pierre is the psalm over there. Okay. So he's the one responsible for, for the wine list over there. And we had a lot of late nights together at Bones Restaurant in Paris, uh, where, you know, it was opening up wines and and talking them through, and you know, being outside already quite spirited, you know, already a couple of bottles consumed. That there were certain little experiences that uh, trigger this sort of uh, eye opening moments. Um, but yeah, uh, over at Bones, uh, over also at uh, Vivant, which was Pierre Jean Cou, another Pierre in wine and food. Um, there are a couple of uh, wines out there, and there were you know small ones that uh, don't necessarily have the glory. It was people, and fame. time, place. Yeah, and, and I think that, that was the experience, which validates and it was the less, question that it's not about the most expensive. It's no. it's about what's important. Yeah, that's what you remember. Very much so. Um, All right, so that's a good one. So that's that's a broad answer. Um, I'll chalk up that you're incapable of giving me a specific answer and move on. Um, all right, last question, and you should be able to handle this, even though it's not your wheelhouse, but peripherally it is. I ask my guests, recommend to me best wine, 15, 20, 22 bucks retail. Now, there's a good chance you're in and out of slope sellers and looking at that. The setup has been, you know, I got kids in their 20s and 30s. They can't show up at parties anymore with like crappy supermarket wine, but they can't spend 40, 50 bucks. Sure. So how do you wow at 15, 18, 20, 22? Give me a red, give me a white. You can give me a category. Like you can get in there with Shannon, you can get in there with Muscadet, or if you have a specific maker, what comes to mind? And, and you reflect well, that on the list. You know, maybe not that price retail, but you're looking to give value. Yeah. It's a, that's a tough one for me, honestly. Uh, How about category? Well, I think when categories, I, th- I was going to say actually Muscadet, you know, it's like one of those, you know, ones so that is so often, I don't want to say undervalued, but it's priced at a point that is very accessible and you kind of think to yourself. It's overlooked like, oh. sometimes. But it's also been really cool to see a lot of these winemakers really sort of really put a lot of effort into their Negoce wines and realize that, okay, you can actually go out and get a bottle, and this is not a great example, but you can get a bottle that's made by Ganavat that is coming at a far different price point than the single parcel ones that are made. You know, same goes even to like some of like the Darden Rebo, like some of the affiliations. It's like, here's some Negoswan, here's the Lard de Choix, um, which is a great one. You know, the Crow's Hermitage that we had just now that we put on the list over here. Like there, there are wines out there that are now being made with the same principle of making excellent wine, but not necessarily paying the taxes on the sort of like hectares that have that prime location. Like at the end of the day, you're kind of paying for real estate 
You know, and I think that's a great. Yes, I mean, a, Napa reflects that. Yeah, and, Pat, and Patrick and Patrick's been doing a phenomenal job with that, saying like, well, "Hey, that's Patrick's wheelhouse. That's and, and why he's that, in Sonoma. Yeah, and, and he's taking some grapes like Zinfandel and other stuff that aren't as expensive. And I think that's a, a but he's making good wine. And he's making exactly. And he's showing and that the price point that you don't have to go to California and spend X amount of dollars, and you can actually come in and get something for the under twenty. Monterio's so, doing a good job with that, you know. So I, I was going to back you into the corner. Muscadet was the answer for white, and I agree with that. When you talk about a red, you could say a Monterio yeah, skull go. or a Zin. Yeah. Right? You know, that's 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 what he's doing. He's making and, good wines. And, and not only that, he's making good wine. It's now, what, two years that he's been doing this? Yes. You know? Yep. And, so, and he's getting good. Uh, you know, who's, who's, where's he going to be two, three years from now? Well, he keeps expanding his varietals, so he's having fun. All right. So- Five good answers. I forgot to tell you this, but we post all our guest answers on social media. Okay. Um, we do a whole elaborate posting, so <laughs> uh, Daniel's answers will be up in the next few days. All right, before we end the show, we do a segment called the Weekly Wine Sip. You know, a lot of times I have winemakers on or psalms, and, you know, their thing is, you know, wine. I ask you to do this not to snag a free glass of wine out of you, but for you and I to have a glass of wine that sort of reflects what you like and, you know, what's going on here. So we're drinking a Morgon. Tell me a little more about the wine. Tell me, vintage maker, why you picked this wine. Uh, Lapierre 2020 Morgon. I was lucky enough to actually do a side-by-side wine dinner with Patrick at Rebel, uh, which was Foyard and Lapierre. And uh, Love them both. winemakers, uh, I forget who was there, but we had a couple of the winemakers there. Um, but it was an incredible experience. Uh, and this actually goes back to my days at spring. Um, this, uh, you know, I think that a big part of why I probably chose this uh, is aside for the appreciation of just the ease and deliciousness of it. Um, Delicious, also, delicious is the right adjective yeah. for this one. Uh, it also happened to be one of my mom's favorites. So, uh, uh, you know, it was. Uh, so it has. It has that sentimental that too, you taste. know. And this was a, a bottle that I had opened up for her and my sister. There were actually two bottles that uh, when they came and they had Christmas uh, dinner at Spring Restaurant. This was in two thousand and twelve, I believe. But uh, this was uh, the bottle of red, and then the bottle of white was. Uh, Domaine de Bellivier, um, Les Jeuniers. And those were two, and, and they're, you know, phenomenal wines that are delicious. And it's crazy how well it's drinking for a 2020. Yeah. It's, I, I mean, that's it the can thing. sit time, for years, but it's delicious now. But when it's fresh, it's fresh. Um, and this is on the list? This is on the list. Um, and yeah, I picked it because it it's has that sort of back to that idea that we talked about, like name that place, name that wine. A lot for a lot of times, it's it's time and place, and perhaps it's my own sort of like shitty memory that I can't remember sort of like year, vintage, this and that. But I can remember the experiences, the detail. I can tell you like which direction I was facing, where the wind was hitting, and like what that evoked for me. And um, you know, that night, that Christmas Eve, with them sitting down in the dining room and me cooking in the kitchen, is one that just brings back a lot of fond memories. Um, and it's nice to have those fond memories coupled with something that is excellent. So stay with the kitchen thing. So you snag four or five bottles of this. You're going to have a couple of friends over, a couple of couples. 
you're cooking a meal. What's what's the good pairing with this? I mean, shit. I mean, isn't this, <laughs> it's, it's roast is chicken. It's roast chicken, right? <laughs> yeah. All right, know. so that's a given. Let's go to B, C, and D. Um, I mean, this is pretty diverse. You could eat a piece of roasted salmon or something. Yeah, you could have it. a fucking pizza pie, you know? It, it's this is like, pretty. It's, it's, that's the beauty of it's it. It's not too. as it's like, heavy as a cab or Bordeaux. No. It, it isn't has, necessarily as light as a burgundy or as nuanced. It's fresh enough to drink on its own, and it's fresh enough to hold up against um, different foods. Uh, so to have something that is made in this style with those sort of like principles that we'd like to adhere to, you know, from the farming practices to the belief of well, what it's meant to be. Well, he's one of the original, you know, four guys yeah. that really, you know, put a focus towards viticulture. And uh, that's important. And if you take that sort of same principle towards the food, you can kind of make the food work really well with it. All right. So here's my, here's what I'm going to dream about tonight. I'm going to dream about a winter rotisserie chicken cut up with salsa verde and about a five-year-old foyard Cote de Puy. That's my dream, <laughs> all right? Is that that's, good? That's a good I may one. even that's a good one. forego the vegetables and the baguette <laughs> just to drink the wine. But the, the, the chicken fat potatoes, you got to oh, get in there. Oh, chicken fat potatoes. Yeah. There you go. All right, so that's um, – thank you to you for pulling out a 2020 LaPierre Morgon. And this is just, you know, the regular Morgon, and it, it's, yeah. it's drinking really well out of the bottle. Um we like this wine a lot, right? We do. All right, Daniel, I told you way more than an hour would go quickly. We got to wrap up the show. I want to do a quick wrap up, then I want to get some info from you, um, and we'll take it from there. So if you have a question, suggestion, wine happening, or event, hit me up at samatthegrapenation.com. That's Sam at the Grape Nation. Subscribe to the Grape Nation podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your pods. Follow us on Facebook at The Grape Nation. On Instagram, we're at S. Ben Ruby, and on Twitter, we're at Ben Ruby. I know it's a little confusing. That's why you can get to us on the hashtag The Grape Nation on both. Um, as I mentioned, we'll post Daniel's wine list and the weekly wine sip selection on our social media sites. Daniel, I can't think that people weren't a little intrigued from this. So if they want to get more info on you, follow you on social, get more info on the restaurants, yeah, come check, buy, order stuff, where do we go? Yeah, check out uh, winner.nyc and okay. keep a lookout for the winter wine series that's going to be starting very soon. That was on my list of questions to ask you and just because so many things. And I talked to Marshall a little about it. You've done a few wine dinners here with friends. I asked if you guys are going to continue to do that because of the food and the wine, and you have a terrific space up here. So starting when you're going to do some organized wine dinners uh, thematically, right? Starting in February, and that's in a big part to John Kelly, who's my psalm here now. Now he's really taken ownership of kind of continuing that uh, wine list. And he worked with Patrick at Pearl and Nash and at Rebel. And so he's already come up with like a month's worth of wine dinners. We'll be doing one a week, keeping it cheap and cheerful. So um, let's, let's imagine that for a second. You see it online. It sounds good. Type of wine you want. You sign up. You're talking about what? An intimate thing? Under 20 people? Oh, yeah. We're talking about like 12. 12, 14. 12 to, 12 to 14 to people most. To pour out a bottle or two, whatever. Exactly. And then paired with 
With food. With food yeah. all the way to the end and a little discussion and education and all that, right? Yeah, less on the discussion, less on the education. Well, I don't mean that in heavy know. hand. I no, mean, it's, it's the guy next to you and John yeah. will also walk It's really through. like bringing that conviviality to the table that's around people wanting to drink good wine and eat good all food. Right, so if I want to keep track on that, where am I going? Winter New York City. Winter.New York City. Winter.NYC.com. Nope. Oh, no, no. The NYC is the dot com. Yeah, exactly. Winner NYC. Okay. So I recommend keep an eye on that. All right. Just a few notes before we go. Hang in there for this. Winebow Imports will be hosting the 10th anniversary of their Women in Wine Leadership Symposium on Monday, January 24th. We like to support that. The mission of this virtual symposium is to create a forum to discuss the experiences, opportunities, and challenges women face and strategize about how to build a more diverse, inclusive, and successful industry for everyone um, to join this symposium. Go to womenwineleaders.com. That's womenwineleaders, one word, dot com. For more info. And lastly, my friends, Daniel Johns and Raj Vaidya, they are doing La Table this year, which is a celebration of wines of the Rhone Valley, North and South, um, January 26th through January 29th in New York City. There are still some tickets available for the grand tasting, the gala dinner, and some select seminars. They did some lunches and dinners. They'll sold out. So go to latablee.com for more info. That's L-A-T-A-B-L-E-E-N-Y-C.com for more info. Now, you raised your arms up. I know we're both big uh, Rowan friends. Well, I'm cooking that dinner. So... <laughs> Oh, so the gala dinner is... So the gala dinner, Oh, yeah. man, I didn't even know yeah, that. Billy, That's part in my ignorance no, on that. Uh, so there, there's a big grand tasting during the day, and then everyone takes a break, and then there's this big gala dinner where people bring bottles, and they provide bottles, and they bring in the best chefs. So you are yeah. doing the dinner for that. <laughs> With uh, Daniel Balud and Billy Durney, so it's going to be a fun night. What's Billy making? He's making the main course. Really? Yeah, so I got the mid, and uh, Daniel's got the, the app. You that know? is a rocking yeah. lineup, man. Wait, Balud's doing what? He's doing the first course, and then wow, I'm doing the he second. Got, and, he uh, got relegated to the uh, <laughs> yeah. appetizer. That's yeah, it starts cool. off with DB, then goes into DE, and then BD at the very end, you know? So, so um, good news. This is coming up in a few weeks, and there's still a few tickets left for that dinner. I mean, based on the price and the amount of wine – Pretty good deal. So that's LaTable, NewYorkCity.com. All right, we got to wrap up. I want to thank my guest, Daniel Eddy. Daniel is the proprietor of uh, Winner and Runner Up. Thank you to our engineer, Kevin, and everyone at the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Sam Ben Ruby, and you've been listening to The Grape Nation. The Grape Nation is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network food radio supported by you for our freshest content subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio you can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place and we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? 
Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. And thanks for listening.